Hi, Inside Voice podcast listeners. This is your co-host, Kerry Roberts, and I am bringing you one more episode featuring some of the speakers and panels from Voice Summit 2019. Today, you'll hear a panel on major media in the voice first era featuring the BBC, ABC, and NPR, and then Steve Keller talking about finding your voice in the age of audio disruption. Lastly, you'll hear a bit from the final day of the summit with Christina Mallon discussing how inclusion is very much in fashion, followed by a panel addressing bias in AI and voice assistance. Enjoy. This morning, um, I have the real pleasure now of hosting uh, one of our main stage panels, which I think is well, I mean, I'm hosting it, so it's going to be fascinating. But I think that it's going to be fascinating because it is one of the most interesting uh, groups of people who are dealing with some of the most nuanced issues of this voice industry uh, that we all have to uh, deal with today when it comes to content. We've got a fantastic lineup uh, of speakers now for you to talk about the, how this whole industry is changing the shape of what it means to be a broadcaster, what it means to be a content creator and owner, and how they are transforming the way in which they are doing their own content production. So we're going to be talking about the role that voice has to play in the major broadcasting era. And it, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our panel to the stage, uh, Joel from NPR, Jeremy from the BBC, and Angela from ABC Australia's broadcasting company. Will you welcome them? Hello. Come on down, guys. So, I'm here. Nice to have you here. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're all great. being very polite about where to sit. <laughs> no, we Thank I'm you. Pretty sure we screwed that up. So, in this session, we're going to talk about what it means for major media in the voice first area. And I think that for most of us, when we're waking up in the morning and we've shifted away from necessarily uh, turning on a radio with a button or uh, turning a dial, or maybe flipping on the TV with a remote. More and more of us every day are speaking out into the ether in our, in our uh, living rooms, our bedrooms and kitchens in the morning and starting our day with maybe one of these broadcasters' uh, stations or content or podcasts, but we're using our voice to get there. And so in this discussion, we're gonna talk about what that means when it comes to content, the changing role of how we get content out in the world, and how we maintain the brands of some of these institutions as they move into the voice first era and all of the things that come with that. But first of all, what I'd like to do is have each of these uh, panelists introduce themselves to you just so that we know who they are. And I'm going to start here with Angela. So Angela, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at ABC? Thank you. Um, so I head up a, a team that's uh, the in-house innovation team, Content Ideas Lab. But it was a few years ago when working in radio that I really started getting into voice. So we launched our flash briefings on, on smart speakers as, as the toe in the water. And, um, and since then, we've been doing some behind the scenes experiments more around story building and expanding to to other flash briefings as well. But um, we haven't, as as you said this morning, we're at the end of the beginning and we're kind of plotting out what what the next stage will be. Um, And for us, it's about looking at the entire ecosystem because we make a huge amount of content at the ABC. We've got TV, we've got a number of radio stations across talk and, and music and Thinking about that more multimodal world, there is um, we need to think about the interaction across different devices and, and different television as well. So, the next step after our small step is, is thinking about that Fantastic. biggest scenario. How, how many Aussies have we got in the house this morning? Yeah, we have one, one other. Okay, <laughs> cool. The, a- Angela did come all the way from Australia to be with us for the next couple of days for Voice Summit, so I think that that's a, a, a worth a round of applause on its own. Yeah, for those of you that travelled as far as Brooklyn. 
Joel. Um, we'll talk about that later. Uh, cool. Uh, Jeremy, uh, my uh, br brother from uh, the Britain, but not a native from there originally. Um, so you might be thrown slightly. Uh, but you can, uh, for those of you who are picking up on accent detection, this is the real the panel to do that on. Jeremy, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at the BBC? Uh, yes, so Jeremy Walker. I'm uh, head of um, service development and delivery for the BBC's voice and AI. Uh, unit. Um, we've been going around two years now um, and really I suppose our, our remit is kind of to continue something that the BBC has always um, been a, 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 a strong proponent of which is um, building out content ecosystems and trying to um, fully engage with the changing technology as it comes down the track. I mean, we did it with radio 100 years ago, nearly 100 years ago. Um, and did it with TV, we've done it with streaming, um, and it very much feels like voice is the next step within that. And honestly, when I, I had left, I'd started my life as a journalist a long time ago and did work for BBC, but long since left and went off into tech. And when I first heard that BBC was doing a thing in voice, and looking at what assistant-mediated content ecosystems would look like, I was like, that is so exciting. I'm not sure that they'll do it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, the last two years have been a whirlwind of doubling down on commitment and being prepared to build out both our understanding of what new content formats might look like in a more interactive and assistant-mediated space, but also figuring out how we then get access um, for all of our audiences around the world to our assets in, in those environments across all the different languages and services that we provide. Of course. And it's worth clarifying that obviously the BBC, whilst being Britain's broadcaster, is also a global broadcaster and that affects yeah. you guys all around the world, doesn't it? Yeah, so I mean, we have massive penetration in the UK. We reach 96% of the population every week, um, maybe over that, but certainly that. Um, but then, you know, there's only 60 odd million people in the UK and we have a audience of edging towards 500 million globally, 42 different language services around the world. I, as a native New Zealander, was brought up on uh, BBC World Service, so it's very exciting for me to be working with them. Um, yeah, it's, it's very much a global proposition um, across news, children's, sport, drama, films, education, there's a lot. And you'll have caught some of the BBC team around. We have another panel uh, with Multimodal tomorrow with Fiona from the yep. BBC team and Paul Jackson and the team from the BBC Kids team are here as well. So please go check out some of the other th things they're doing across, across the conference. Uh, Joel, a little bit closer to home uh, from NPR. And obviously I mentioned this morning that you shared the fantastic research that the team over there at NPR have been working on with Edison, which I think all of us now use as our benchmark for some decent stats when it comes to the world of uh, smart audio. Uh, what does that mean to you guys at NPR and what have you been doing there? Right, so um, for NPR, you, you know, unlike uh, many of the folks in the room that are thinking about new opportunities and thinking about new revenue streams and, and new ways of, of reaching audiences, um, for, for NPR is really existential five years ago when uh, at a time where if you're under the age of 30, you may not have a radio, or if you do, it may be your car radio, or if you live in a city, you might not have a car. Uh, so all of a sudden, really virtually overnight, there are millions of new radios in people's homes. And so at the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the most base level, uh, you ask to play NPR and you get your local uh, NPR radio station. And so uh, 
we're creating new audiences, we're reaching audiences that have traditionally been listening to us for longer periods of time, in new ways, in different places in the home. And so for, for us, it was really an important development at a time we were thinking a lot about atomization of content, personalization, and, and reaching people where the, the changing radios or lack of radios in the home are also, we're thinking about the, uh, the changing radios in the cars. Uh, and how we might be uh, be reaching people or the challenges that we might face in the coming years. So so my team is thinking about emerging platforms, uh, heavy concentration on voice assistance, but also thinking about things like podcasts, connected cars, connected home. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we've seen, particularly from the work that you guys have been doing with things like the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me skill and many other projects uh, besides is that, you know, I'm, probably learning a lot from what happened with NPR One is that this atomization of content, you mentioned that word, has become a real problem for all three of you. And I think that, Angela, maybe talk a little bit about how you guys are thinking about that at ABC. When we go away from having just mainstream broadcast radio stations, turn them on, I put up with whatever's on in the morning, whether I like it or not, whether I like that news story or not, but we begin to break these things down into 60 second clips, one and a half minute reels. How does that change the way in which you actually think about designing the news and the content that goes around that for, for your consumers? Yeah, I think both the, you know, the pros and the cons of, of broadcast radio is that we make so much content. We've kind of got too much content. And so to work out how we turn that into something that's atomized and personalized for your needs, but then can also make sense in a catch up on demand environment is actually kind of really tricky. And, and, and being kind of public broadcast media, we're not going to be turning off broadcast anytime soon. So we need to work out how to do both and how to do them in ways that um, is a really satisfying experience, I think, for, for on demand. So, uh, you know, for us, I think we're looking at all of the content that we make and, and looking at well, where are the, the quick wins that this we can take from broadcast and put into, you know, voice first. Um, but we're also thinking about it the other way as well. What mm. can we make for voice first that could also fill one of those, you know, very hungry schedules for, for broadcast. Mm. And I think with what's really interesting to me about smart speakers, and I guess this goes back to I set up the first digital, first podcast stream um, for ABC, and that's when we're really thinking about earphones and how do we not make radio and put it onto a podcast, but how do we make something where we know the audience will be there from the second they hit play and have it in their ears on a train? Well, now we're thinking about how do we make audio that's maybe designed for a communal space. So it mm. might be going back to a bit more of usual radio listening where yeah. there was a, you know, a radio in the centre of your kitchen, um, but it's not exactly the same. So. So, so we're not headed back to three of us huddled around a wireless, kind of like all trying to listen in at the same time. I'm it's, okay with that. <laughs> it's lovely. It's a, it's a blended experience, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Jeremy, what about you at the BBC? Obviously, you guys have down, gone into multiple experiments. Uh, I think many people will be familiar with the the BBC Children's skill, yeah. but also the work you've been doing overseas. Maybe tell us about a couple of those projects and how that's changing the way in which you're thinking about this kind of breakdown of content from more traditional formats. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one, of the, one of the challenges for us is um, you, we on, on this panel and, and everybody here today can is here out of a belief that voice is fundamentally changing the information ecosystem. And the way in which you interact with existing assets has shifted from um, playing with the dial a few years ago to online search to now sort of, um, voice mediated sonic search. And that's 
very exciting in terms of being able to find uh, assets and drive increased individual access across a, a wide public service um, content estate. But it also then presents really quite dynamic and exciting opportunities and issues around um, facilitating engagement that is back and forth and, and goes, goes two ways and allows you to um, start to take a more, I suppose, meaningful and individualistic approach to getting into the meat of any subject. And that, that's true whether it's the hard subjects that BBC is renowned for in terms of breaking news and um, particularly international news, uh, but equally very true for our children's material and our comedy material. And we've started, we've run over the last couple of years a whole series of in some instances experiments and in other instances proper product releases around getting into the weeds for different disciplines across the BBC's estate. So we ran um, a whole series about getting access to comedy live from the Edinburgh, or nearly live from the Edinburgh Festival, um, which, which was, was really interesting and, and, and wildly challenging in terms of understanding how comic material lands in a more interactive environment. Um, on the other hand, we pushed out a as you, as you mentioned, the children's skill, which has done fabulously well and is happily up for an award this evening, fingers crossed, um, if you're on the judging panel, <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, and and but they, they've, they've done really um, incredible things along, along the lines of providing kids access to the experience that they want in an other moment, whether that be um, singing songs, whether it be engaging in gameplay, or even just sort of a, a, a more traditional lean back experience in the form of bedtime stories. And they've managed to push a whole wealth of material mm. from this sort of microcosm of BBC content into one space and made it broadly discoverable. They've had some challenges and um, my colleague uh, Paul Jackson did an excellent UX deep dive on that yesterday. Um, and they've, they've had some challenges working that through, but it has proved incredibly valuable and, and particularly in terms of just our learnings for shaping the wider ecosystem. The one other thing that we have really tried to deliver on is not just thinking about our British licensed fee paying audience and starting to deliver more interactive content experiences internationally. And um, Earlier this year around the Indian elections we released um, an interactive election news update um, that ran for the whole period of the poll um, and allowed people to get reliable, reliable news from the BBC, which is one of relatively few trusted sources of information in an Indian election cycle. Um, having worked on Indian election cycles, I feel reasonably confident saying that. Um, and, and provide a, a, a way in which audiences can sense check kind of what's going on day to day. We've learned a lot. There's a hell of a long way to go in terms of actually moving from a fairly generic and um, intent-constrained ecosystem to something that is more dynamic and, and, and two-way and truly conversational. But I think being in a position to conduct a series of experiments across different populations and different audience types has really helped us. I think what, what you're hearing uh, is three traditional media companies here uh, with hundreds of years uh, of yeah. experience that are thinking much more in terms of um, audience-centric view of the world. And we don't have a choice anymore, really, to just say, let's play it live and just hope people mm -hmm. tune in. Certainly, there will always be a, uh, a reason uh, uh, to, to, uh, to listen live, to watch live, uh, for that communal experience of this is happening right now. 
But it's also very important to understand the, the, the lessons over the last uh, 10 years of Netflix and HBO Go and, and, and thinking about, and of course Amazon, the thinking people want control, people want the ability to uh, have things customized, people want um, to, uh, to uh, uh, want what they want when they want it, and you've got to meet them. Uh, if you want to remain relevant and indispensable in their lives. Absolutely. And so, you know, a number of ways that, that we have, have tried to do that is certainly uh, make the, the live streams of our 270 radio stations across the U.S. as uh, easy to find as possible with just simple utterance, play NPR. And that's one thing that we've learned. The simple utterances are really important to get people to uh, uh, to to, um, to find them and not have to yeah. say a series of magic words. But that presents an interesting challenge for you with all of those different stations across the, the, the whole country, but yet one brand of NPR is that how do I begin to relate to these different frequencies, these different stations at a local level when you have a, a national broadcast? And you've obviously had some challenges with that with individual properties. I mentioned Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, but you know, we know the, the presenters behind shows like This American Life, for example, but how do you deal with that when you know you actually want to really brand an experience but people don't necessarily get the the voice that they're used to waking up with in the morning how, how are you thinking yeah. about that well, well we started with the, the notion that um, if we're not going to know uh, just from the device itself where you live uh, then we'll just ask you we'll, we'll, uh, so if you say play NPR the first time we, we think about the conversational flow uh, say, if you know the name of the station, say it now, uh, or you can browse by city and state or zip code. So we take you through a very uh, easy to use flow, and um, thankfully, we've had a 94% rate of, uh, uh, of success, people getting through that and, and getting localized. And then the second time you, uh, you say play NPR, and we say, I see your station is uh, WNYC, would you like to play that? And say, yes, play it. Uh, and then from then on, we won't ask you again. We just uh, go ahead and play you that station that, that you've chosen. So that's, that's worked quite well. Now you mentioned the Wait, Wait quiz. Uh, we have a, a weekly comedy uh, program called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's a quiz show. And so we built out uh, with uh, actually the help of uh, some, uh, uh, some friends at VaynerMedia who are here, uh, a, uh, a CMS that allowed non-technical producers to, uh, to actually do the quiz, and we wanted to be really ambitious about it and not just have an A, B, C, D, but actually use natural language understanding to allow you to fill in the blank. And we use the host voices of the radio program, Peter Sagal and Bill Curtis, uh, to ask questions and then deliver some, some jokes. Uh, and so it's really quite a, quite a nice experience. We've learned a lot through it, um, but it's, it's certainly a challenge, uh, retention, uh, is, is a challenge for people to play the game every week and, uh, and for people to find it uh, as, a, as one of the you know, 90,000 skills. Yeah. And Jeremy, obviously at the BBC, all of the main stations have their own sonic identities, yet when we talk to the BBC, there has to be a kind of unified sound, which you guys have actually brought together in a, in a single sonic identity, at least from the BBC perspective or across most outputs. T tell us a little bit about that story of how, how are you dealing with the idea of sonic branding in this space? Yeah, I think um, it's, I think, I think sonic branding and, and architecture is a really, it's an audio architecture is incredibly interesting um, space for us to get into. Um, particularly, as you say, there are so many different brands, there are so many different styles. I mean, we have um, radio stations that are just dedicated to the edgiest of UK urban grime, which, doesn't necessarily go down well when played out to the um, 
more traditional, shall we say, audiences that engage in our Radio 3 product, which is a much more classical audio, um, classical music and um, sort of ponderous discussions um, on, on rarefied topics. Um, <laughs> part of our estate, uh, both very, very significant and, and, and valued parts of our estate. But clearly, from an audience perspective, if you're engaging with the BBC and you have already sort of segmented yourself into the bucket of, I like the BBC because I really like One Extra and the latest in UK urban grime, that's very, you're, you're going to struggle mm -hmm. in an environment where we're, we're forcing you through other experiences. I think what we're doing for now is trying to come up with effectively the bare minimum of what audiences will expect from us, which similar to you guys has been just delivering really reliable um, linear output and audio on demand that is well, in, well constructed in and of itself and has its own um, audio identity, but that that is packaged in a single, you're entering the BBC environment now, um, audio space that starts to help people to understand their, their journeys into it. There's a lot that we want to do and have started to play around with in terms of adding stings and audio beds and wanting to get to a place where that's actually driven by deeper personalization. A lot of that is slightly dependent on what we're able to do in these environments. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's quite clear from a general direction that the, the, the technology and the content consumption is going in, that we need to increasingly find ways to make that feel a more um, empathetic audio environment. Mm. Um, and that from, a, from, from, from an organizational standpoint, we need to both find ways to migrate audiences to those places, but also kind of take the, the organization on a journey that gets there. You know, there's thousands of people that work for the BBC and, and in the same way as our audiences are very dis disparate and different to each other, those staff sectors are as well. And we want to work with them to find ways that actually we can initially funnel people into a fairly basic voice experience, but that, that we start to double down on getting the more personalized, the more meaningful audio identity around the, the experience. There. And Angela, you guys are working across both radio and television, across what, for, uh, what, whilst is one country, is the size of its own continent. I mean, it is its own continent in that sense. And so you have a very wide and diverse range of populations to represent there as well. Uh, what's that challenge like for, you think, across the, the TV audiences, the radio audiences, and, and actually representing a, a, a very broad population whilst only having one voice in many cases or one soundscape to do that. Yeah, and we um, haven't cracked this nut at all around how we do sonic branding and what is the sound of ABC um, at all on, on voice. But I, I kind of think back to what we've learned through social years ago where a new platform is, is an opportunity to create a new voice as well. And with... Um, with radio, our, the bulk of our listeners are, you know, the average age is 50 plus. Um, this is a real opportunity, I think, for us to think about what's the voice of the ABC for a new audience who mm. we might try to get through um, through voice technology. And, and that could be the same voice across, uh, you know, TV, radio, um, and, and our other online content. I think that what's sort of central to our, our discussions around this is is the trust that we have with our audience. And I, and I guess that's because our our first products out on voice are news-based and, and the reason that they work is because people trust us for, for our news and it's the voice of those journalists that, that 
kind of brings that trust to our brand. So that's kind of on the news side. But then when, yeah, thinking about entertainment, thinking about kids, drama, um, there's such a broad range of content that we do. I don't think we can get to sort of one voice, but I'm hoping we can think about um, one new voice that can then lead off to these other brands. In, in many cases, a lot of the properties that all three of you have worked with have been translating things that we know as the existing brands, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, for example, a lot of the BBC Children's stuff building off of those existing brands, into these new voice-first formats. But how are we thinking, you know, and maybe Jeremy's talking a little bit more about what happened with the Indian election and, and you know, kind of those new, new properties that are truly, you know, that, that didn't exist really in its own format. Obviously, there is news in Hindi and, and that, that kind of thing exists. But you know, actually creating new voice-first formats, can we actually do that? Is there the, the scale and breadth to be able to do that yet? So I think there's definitely, there's, there's definitely opportunities to do it. There's definitely, um, and, and there's definitely value in doing it. I think one of the, um, the, the tricky thing going into it is for an organization particularly like ours that has so many existing properties um, and, and, and vehicles for driving engagement is kind of justifying starting a new one. Um, you know, one fight that we have had over the years is how many different BBC apps there are in the App Store, and we don't want to suddenly create a raft of new um, BBC skills and voice experiences. We want to be able to help people find their way into the, the ecosystem. I mean, the one exception we've made for that is around kids, which is clearly a different space, and, and that has worked very well. Um, but I think we've, we've, done, we've done a number of very different things um, in uh, the, the Indian elections. We, we ran a sort of summer of sport exercise over the last year, last year, um, around take me to whatever um, sporting event is on at the moment. So take me to Wimbledon, take me to the World Cup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that provided quite a lot of valuable insight for us, and we were able to drive quite a lot of new audio identity around it. As long as we were conscious ourselves that actually what we're doing here is we are setting up a new um, content edifice and you mustn't you know one of, one of the big battles around this is setting expectations internally yeah. and saying you know this is not the new nine o'clock news that you're launching here this is this is an, an exercise that goes out to explore a possible area validate that there's customer demand there and then if, if it makes sense to to really dive into that do your customer discovery get involved and then double down but double down on the basis of evidence mm. um, and that, for, for, for an old legacy organization that is used to certain process around setting up a new, a, a new uh, property, that's quite a different approach. Um, we've, we've been lucky in how receptive the organization's mm -hmm. been to that, but it has, it's, it's, it's something you have to keep front of mind because yeah, people do readily like forget. Angela, how are you thinking about that in ABC? Has this been seen as an opportunity to create a whole new brand of things or is this being more of an extension of existing products? It's been a kind of a bit of both, and I think, you know, to follow on from what Jeremy was saying about the sort of organisational change aspect, I think that's kind of key to, to any sort of success in, in this new paradigm. It's about taking an approach where it's about trialling, testing, learning and building again, and, and that's a real mind shift change for, um, for, for an industry where we're used to you know, making something, and, and sometimes with TV, it'll take 18 months to make a program, and then it's out and it's gone. That's a very different mindset to what we need for voice, where we need to think about, we're doing a thing, we'll test it, and we're, we're only testing it in order to learn, yes. get data, and, and put it back back in. Um, and I think that that's where we've gone and, and done experiments with 
key teams who we know are sort of halfway there. So the, the R&D team at, at ABC a couple of years ago built a, a story builder tool and, and worked with a team who were working on um, a news podcast called The Signal for news for sort of younger audiences. And, and that was in order to get them to trial just what it would take to build a news story if there was conversational interaction along the way. Um, and that was a really good two-way learning experience, I think, because not only did we have the tech team learning about how content is made, but we had the content team working about just how kind of difficult it is to make the tech, and both of them really appreciating each other's skill sets. Joe, do you think we're going to see the, the first you know, kind of real breakthrough voice experience that you know, creates its own brand or akin to the This American Lives or others. We've seen it in podcasting. We obviously saw a real revolution off of the back of things like Serial and the popularity that other shows made when transitioning to podcasts, many of those being NPR shows. Do you think we're going to see a wave of those things coming from these types of organizations? Sure, I, I think so. I mean, I think you have to avoid the, the conceit of, you know, to the point Jeremy was making earlier, of, of the traditional broadcast thinking of we always know the programs that people want to hear, and so therefore we're going to go into a room and think, 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 and then come out with the show, and all of a sudden it's on Saturday morning. <clears throat> I don't think that, that's the, that this is the, the space for that kind of thinking. I think uh, we have to be an audience, um, uh, ruthless about being audience first. Figure out what kind of problems that you're trying to solve for the audience. You know, we have these devices in, in different areas in the room. They do different jobs in, in those, those areas. Uh, very soon, will there be a lot more of these in cars? And think about um, the, the needs of the audience and certainly the brand that you've developed and the content that you already have at your disposal in terms of curation, but then thinking about how you might think of that, um, think of that differently. Uh, one you know, very specific example that I can give that was more about curation than it was about creating something new. We realized that um, uh, the audiences were telling us that they have these new devices sitting on their counters and uh, you know, I liken it to the old, old uh, a command line prompt on a PC, which is very intimidating and it blinks at you and you don't know what to do with it. Uh, and, and so many people have these things and like I know the things on the card that came in my box and you know, a thing my, my, uh, my son told me I should do with it, uh, or I can listen to music, whatever, but, uh, but, but trying to get a little more experimental about it. So we realized that what we've done on the radio very well is um, take people by the hand and take them through an experience. And so for our flash briefing, which was a five-minute newscast, we said, well, what happens if we uh, curate a, a more on-demand experience that starts with the newscast? And so from taking people from a five-minute flash briefing uh, into uh, uh, independent, um, not independent, uh, atomized stories, we've now increased the listening time to 26 minutes. And so uh, that, that's an example of a new way of thinking about the product, but not necessarily a new product that seems to work for the audience. Absolutely. Well, this is a great opportunity to just take a moment and get some questions from you on the floor. So we've got a couple of runners, I think, with uh, mics that will be able to run them to you if you do have a question. Um, so be thinking about that. If you've got a, if you've got a question, and you want to raise a hand. We'll bring a microphone to you. We'll take a couple of them. I'm looking for questions, not sermons. I think that's just important <laughs> to always add. So if you do have a question, please uh, raise a question. Uh, that'd be great. Um, who's got our first question? Please do just say who you are, where you're from, and, and the question. If you want to stand up, we can see you if you're able. Great. We've got one at the very back, and then we'll come to the lady in the middle. 
Hi, my name is uh, Richard Waith. I'm from Miami, Florida with VUCA Health. We provide medication education videos. My question is for, from a media standpoint, how has the voice space made you rethink the advertising model? Rethink around advertising. Angelina, do you want to talk a little bit about that first of all in terms well, of how it's changing your perception of advertising at least as well? Well, I think just briefly, we're a bit like the BBC where we don't have any ads at home, but we are able to, you know, monetize internationally. Um, but where it, it has us thinking about um, where our content will turn up and what will be around it. And that's something that we've had to wrestle with, you know, from YouTube, Facebook, whatever. And, and Voice is another platform where our content will sit with ads around it. Um, and, but I know that, you know, from my background in podcasting, that when people are listening, they're really listening. And um, that's kind of a really quality interaction. So I can see that there being huge potential for, for monetization within voice. And, and Jeremy, we talk a little bit about some of the work that you guys, obviously the BBC doesn't, uh, BBC doesn't carry ads of its own in the sense of that it doesn't carry commercial advertising, but it certainly carries a lot of promotion for its other properties and other things around the ecosystem. And obviously driving adoption of these new products is a challenge. How have you been thinking about advertising that way? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, that, sorry. When it, whenever somebody mentions the monetization point for the BBC, it's just a world of possible ways in which this can go because it's a, to, to the point in, in the UK we, we, we are slightly bizarrely constituted I'm very thankful for, the, for that, that constitution but um, but it, essentially we, we are funded through a, a license fee which is paid for by any any home that owns a television or wants to engage with public service output um, and so and, and that is a direct um, trans, transfer of funds collected on our behalf by the government but then um, it, but the contract is between the end license fee payer and the BBC as an organisation. Um, so on one level, we're quite insulated. Um, outside the UK, we do run um, a number of ads, and, and, and some of that is um, through a very sort of uh, various commercial making, commercial-minded arms. Um, I think the, the point around how how the nature of those ads or the nature of those placements is changing is, is I think really interesting. There's definitely quite a lot of near-term capacity for driving better um, contextually aware promotion mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that is where we, you know, there's, there's um, a, a couple of incredible people on our editorial voice, voice first formats team who are really looking at this. Um, a colleague of mine, Nathan, is really pushing it forward um, and, and that's primarily about understanding the location and the context the user is in and the, the, the very basic data that we get at the moment and then optimizing the responses that we can send back to them around promoting other um, material across our um, estate um, for now. I think where that goes, and I was in the monetization session yesterday, which is quite interesting, I think there is, there is a world of much more um, impactful and high, high engagement value coming down the track around being able to actually connect conversationally and complete actions as part of the Absolutely. user experience. We need to be able to get into that world yeah. um, through the platforms. And Joel, maybe can I twist this question slightly for you? Is that when you're thinking about these properties that the NPR is creating in the voice first space, are you advertising them or are they advertisements for NPR? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe let, let me start that. by saying, <laughs> Let me not answer that question by saying, no, no, uh, I, I, 
We have, although we are a nonprofit, that doesn't mean no revenue, right? It's very expensive to have uh, fixers and translators in Afghanistan uh, to, to cover the news. And so uh, being able to monetize uh, is, is critical for us. And we've made that case to our friends at the technology companies um, frequently. And uh, to their credit, that you know they, they are listening. And, and the idea that uh, if we're going to create high quality content, uh, it's, it's not free. It needs to be, uh, um, to be monetized. So we do think about it. We, we think that there is a great opportunity, given the interactivity of the platform, uh, to be able to uh, complete actions, to be able to, whether it's make a phone call, whether it's to uh, uh, order something, add something to your cart. I, I do think that, that we're very, very early stages. Um, but I also would caution that we're in people's homes and like any house guest, you want to be respectful. And so if we start really cluttering up the experiences with, um, uh, with, with horrible ad experiences, I think people will look elsewhere. And so uh, I, I think that there's certainly, certainly this green field of opportunity when it comes to modernization, but I would also urge caution and think about delightful experiences uh, that actually add value rather than just highest CPM possible. Right. So if you're a mattress company, um, or if you are a producer of website management systems, don't come after the voice first experiences quite so aggressively. Okay, that's good to know. Um, okay, we had a question uh, in the middle there, unless that one has disappeared because of the question before it being the same question. Looks like it. Anybody else want to raise a question? Down the front. The motor here. Oh, right here. That way? Hi. We got one over so there. Sorry, I can't see you because of the light in my Hi. face. Thank Hello. you very much. Thank you Doing so much for the great discussion. My name is Alex. I'm the CEO of BingeWith, where we turn articles into audio so you can listen to the internet. And I'd love to ask a, a question of Jeremy. What are you doing to leverage your existing great articles that you've published? Are you looking to turn those into audio to, to let all of us listen to them on the go? I'll just repeat that question for the room. So, Jeremy, that was for you. So, all of the main, amazing content that the BBC creates, obviously the articles and all of the written content. What's yep. the what's the plans, if any, for leveraging that in in a voice and audio space? Um, we're looking at it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think is. Can I pin you down to an answer? Uh, not not hugely. Um, okay, good. <laughs> but I mean, the the point's well taken. Um, the BBC has a raft of material across a variety of, of different formats at the moment. We, want, we fundamentally want to make that as accessible to our audiences as we possibly can um, across all platforms. I think there is, um, it feels like there's definitely technological opportunities for doing that. The one thing I would say though is we've been looking at, you know, we're looking at it, we've been looking at it for a while um, and a lot of what I've seen to date feels like it doesn't chime very well with um, the experience that people have come to expect from the BBC. Um, that said, there's definitely some emerging functionality that's, that's, that's coming out now that we're beginning to take more of an interest in. Um, so I, I think I'm, I'm very keen to find a way to make it happen, but it needs to be, it needs to be bloody good, honestly, for it to happen, because we are the BBC and there is an expectation there of a editorial integrity and very high quality bar, but also just that it feels comfortable. Yeah. 
Fantastic, thank you. Um, I think we've got time for one final question. There was someone down the front here. We've got it already over there. I think it's Martin at the back. Martin's come all the way from the Netherlands for Voice Summit this week. Give it up for Martin. Yeah. Amsterdam no. in the house. Hi, Amsterdam everyone. Represent. Good. Go for it. Uh, Martin Lynch Fitzgerald, Global Head of Voice at Nodes. Um, I was wondering, it's a question for everybody. Um, it's called due prominence in Europe, or mostly in Amsterdam, meaning that when you have a public media service, uh, in the ether, you have to be passed on. People sh uh, are... Yeah, I have to listen to you. Yet on the platforms by Google, Amazon, Bixby coming up, of course you are part of their strategy and you can be kicked off if they feel like it. You have no right. What's your take on that? I know the BBC stopped their podcast already from their uh, platform. So yeah, I wonder how you deal with that and if you accept a lower position in the fact that you're a third level audio app. I think we got that question, so I'll just replay that back to you. But obviously, you know, in many other cases, you're owning either partly government-funded or in some way connected with you know, kind of non-profit. Having access to the airwaves has been something that was a, a relationship purely with a governmental organization. Now, as we come into the world of voice first, platforms predominantly owned by Alexa and by Google, obviously, you know, the, these spaces, um, there's a mediator there. And what's the attitude that each of the organizations is taking towards that difference in relationship? Yeah, it's, it's a really, you know, it's a line call, I think, every time because um, we think about the same things. We, we've been putting our content on social as well. And, and for us, it's about um, wanting to be where the audience is, wanting to be relevant. We're, we're funded by taxpayers and there's a lot of taxpayers who won't turn on a broadcast TV or radio and we're just as important to them. Um, but as to, you know, precisely what we do and where and, and how we negotiate, you know, the, the coming years... The, that, your question and where that's coming from is, is really, you know, at the heart of our, our considerations. That some of it does come down to perhaps, you know, more government regulation or, or, or frameworks for the industry to adhere to. Um, we do definitely think a lot about our user data as well, and, and there's a lot of ethical considerations for us in the coming years. In my radio background, I'm going to try and keep to time, so I'm going to give you each 30 seconds just on this if you've got a comment to make on it. Okay. Um... Oh, now I'm pressured. Um, <laughs> so I think it, it is absolutely something that we care deeply about. We have red lines. We've acted on those red lines recently. Um, and I, I think we're, we're, we're prepared to um, stand behind uh, the, the, the nature of the relationship that we want directly with the audience. And that is something that we are you know, very keen in advancing. The one other thing that I'd say is this isn't... On one level, this isn't new. To Andrew's point, like this has been disintermediation has been a nightmare since social, since the beginning of um, passing on other people's content and bundling and all of that. The one thing I would say is that in the voice environment, it is that much more acute because you're not getting more than one result, and you, and, and thereby, if you're eroding user choice, there's. There's, there's much more of a, an acute pain point around the relationship, the nature of that relationship there at that stage. So, so the good news, I, I think, is that um, Amazon and Google uh, realize that we help them sell devices. So uh, they have actually been a good partners on a lot of the, uh, the things we've, we've worked on with them. That said, uh, we understand that the, whenever you um, lose some amount of control of the, uh, uh, that last mile to the, the, the listener, <clears throat> uh, 
that you may be dependent upon the uh, the whims of, of that company. And so uh, we've tried to mitigate that in some ways by trying to build our own platform and uh, and not not uh, hardware devices, but our own platform, which uh, allows us to maintain some semblance of control of uh, of data uh, and of uh, some amount of understanding of, of the uh, the audience, which uh, uh, which helps us try to keep that direct connection. However, it's going to be a, a continual. Uh, um, uh, sort of look across the, the, the ring for, for some time. Um, but as long as we're good for each other, I think that that certainly uh, is, is, is helpful. Um, but it's, it, it, that, that game has yet to be played out completely for sure. Fantastic. Well, what a fascinating panel. And thank you so much for all of you that have traveled a massive way. Give it up for our panel. Thank you, Rush. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Morning. How's everybody doing? All right, good. Learning lots of stuff? Good. All right, well, I'm going to give you a, a little introduction to Sonic Strategy um, in 15 minutes or less. Uh, so we're going to breeze through this pretty quickly. Um, and I'm going to preface uh, by saying that um, I approach this topic looking at it more as a system. So voice is part of a system. Um, my background is actually in psychology. Uh, I was on my way to grad school got sidetracked by music and wound up in Nashville uh, and found uh, while I was writing music for commercials that I really loved branding and marketing. Uh, and in 2005, started my own company that kind of brought all of those worlds together. Um, the psychology, the research, the testing, the branding, the marketing, the music, the sound, and now we have voice. Uh, and uh, in December, I was hired by Pandora to basically um, work within their company to kind of bring some of the knowledge and the experience that I have uh, as part of a new audio-first consultancy um, that we just launched um, this past June called Studio Resonate. Uh, so that's just a little background about me so you have a little of the perspective of the lens um, that, uh, that I'm going to share with you this morning. So. I'm gonna start by saying the first thing that's pretty obvious, which is sound moves us. Now, I play around a lot uh, in a field called psychophysics, which is really how um, our perceptions of the world through our senses come together to give us a picture of reality. So I get to play around with fun stuff like, can I change your perception of how something tastes by what I'm putting in your ears? And as it turns out, I can. I can influence what you order in a restaurant based on what's playing in the playlist or how much that you're consuming. And we've known for ages that sounds really powerful. You know, emotionally, we know that. We've got the soundtrack of our lives that are peppered with these moments where there are particular pieces of music around maybe a romantic encounter or a breakup or, or something that was um, just just a, a memory moment for us. So that's not in question. But as powerful as we know that sound and music is, when it comes to working in advertising, branding, marketing, it's still a really undervalued as asset. The time and the resources that are devoted to thinking about sound is very small compared to how we tend to think about our other senses, particularly the visuals. And that's forced us to a point where sound is very often the last thing that gets thought about. 
So for years I've been saying, well, what happens when we get to a world where you can't see the brand? Or maybe there's no text so you're not reading about the brand. And lo and behold, it's finally happened. So we're here in this age of audio disruption. We're having conferences like this where we're talking about voice and more broadly a world of sound where we're not really seeing a brand, we're interacting with it in terms of the audio. And that's great because it's elevating the conversations. But the bad news is that old habits tend to die very slowly. So we tend to approach this whole world still thinking about things in terms of it being a tactic. You know, when we talk about audio branding, Usually the first thing that happens is, you know, a, a brand or a, or a client will say, I want that audio logo or I want a brand theme. You know, they immediately jump to the tactical execution. And that can happen in voice as well. We immediately go to what's the skill? What's the thing that I need to, to interact with my customers? Rather than really stepping back and thinking about it more as a strategy. So while we're focused on voice, the danger is that that's all we focus on. Instead of thinking as vo about voice as one piece of an entire audio experience. There are a couple of researchers by the name of Les Binet and Peter Field who took some time to take a look at uh, brand communications. And one way that brands communicate very often is sales activation communication. It's usually driven by price point. It's usually that buy one, get one free. Uh, and in this digital age, we tend to move more and more into these short-term sales activations. And they, have a, they, they do a job. As you can see from the chart, there's that spike. You get the sales lift but it tends to be pretty rationally based. What Binet and Field found was that if you looked at longer term brand building, if your messages are really about pushing experiences, pushing emotion, that over time what happens is that that kind of brand communication will sell two times or generate two times the amount of revenue of a simple sales activation. And not only that, you do the brand building correctly, you get to a point where the price sensitivity just isn't as important. And I've found that in dealing with sound, and even now in dealing with voice, the tendency is to think about these short-term activations instead of thinking about the overall experience and what are we doing to build the brand. And I think of anything, that's the message that I want you to take away from this, is, is realizing that when you're talking about a return on investment, there's three things in the audio world, and I would say even in the voice world more specifically, that you need to concentrate on. The first is engagement, and that's where we tend to always go. I mean, for years in advertising, we've been thinking about sound as part of engagement, and whether that sound is music, whether that sound is sound design, whether it's a voiceover, and now specifically looking at, at voice technology, and how are we engaging with that, that listener. 
But to be honest, I think engagement is pretty much a bullshit metric unless you have an outcome attached to it. If there's no behavior that's coming out of that, then engagement is fairly meaningless. So we need to start thinking about what are the outcomes going to be and not just, you know, is, is someone listening or are we getting a click out of it? The next thing we need to think about is even broader than the engagement, which is how are we establishing brand identity? Are we just gonna get lost in a sea of activations because there's nothing that's really being done to help us stand out? And there's all kinds of techniques that we can talk about identity, but we don't have time to do that here. But if we're talking about identity and we're thinking about things in terms of a system, then we have to also think about management. So how are we building in controls? How are we building in consistency? How are we making sure that what we're doing in the world of voice is translating to what we're doing in TVCs, is translating into what we're doing in navigational sounds and other areas of the brand, is translating into what we're doing in sound in a retail environment, to marketing experiences, to pop-ups, and how do we manage all of that? And the trick is, if we can do that effectively, if instead of engagement, we're really thinking about behavior, what is the consumer behavior that we're trying to get at and how are we priming them and how are we using sound and voice to get them to perform the actions that we want? And identity is really about perception. What do we want consumers to perceive about our brand? And how are our choices affecting that perception? And then the, the equity, the management piece is about equity. And when we get all of those together, that's where our return on, on investment really is. So just step back a little bit. And when you're thinking about voice and sound in general, just start asking some questions because strategy is really all about choices. So if you think, what role does sound play in your brand experience? I mean, it might be anathema, but I don't necessarily think every brand needs to have a voice experience. But to know that, you have to think strategically. So what is the experience that you want consumers to have, and how does sound and voice play in that? How does it relate to your brand identity? So not only are you thinking about experience, you're thinking about identity. And then how are you tying that sound into your communications and communicating that experience and that identity across multiple touch points throughout your entire brand ecosystem. And then finally, in terms of innovation, I mean, voice itself is an innovation, but what's next on the horizon? And how can you kind of future proof, if you will, where you're headed with this? And as I said, it's really about choices. And so what are the questions that you wanna ask? They're questions that you're probably already asking in different categories. If you think about objectives, if you think about engagement, if you think about attention, all I've done here is ask these questions from more of a sound perspective. You know, so in terms of perception, what do you want your listeners to think or feel? What happens in a voice experience there to relate to that perception? In terms of the competition, how are you going to claim a unique sonic space? How do you do that in voice? Is it the choice of the voice? Is it something that 
is paired with some other kind of sonic cue? How are you going to make people listen? These are the questions that really should be driving our thought around how we're building our voice systems and how it's tying into our brand system as a whole. So it really is thinking more strategically about sound and the choices that you're making. And it's a broader perspective. And that's essentially what I wanted to share in a very short amount of time. And um, wow, I'm right on time for the panel. Um, so thank you for uh, that short amount of attention today. I'll be around today if you want to grab me and talk about some of this. Um, and uh, I think we have a panel coming up right now. So thanks so much. Our next speaker, somebody very special, uh, Christina has lost the use of her arms due to an affliction called ALS. I know ALS very well. I lost my mother to ALS in 2012, and we it was quite a journey. Christina's uh, version of ALS, if you will, has caused her to lose the, lose the ability to use her arms, but it doesn't advance the same way that ALS does with others. But she has turned this, what could be a tragedy for some, into opportunity. Opportunity not only for herself and her career, but for the entire industry. She is the inclusive design lead now at WPP, one of the world's top agencies, where she is working with brands to bring shopping experiences and access to clothing and fashion to people of all abilities. I want to bring Christina up now as our next keynote speaker. Christina, thank you so much. Let's give it up for Christina Mellon. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. So thank you so much for your time. Um, as Pete said, uh, about eight years ago, I started to lose the ability um, to use my arms. And everyone says, oh, you know, it's super tough. And how can you go on from that? And I would say one of the biggest impacts that has allowed me to have a job and to go out and interact with the community is voice. Every day, I would say I probably, my waking hours, 70% of it is using voice products. I'm able to work because of voice. I'm able to talk to my friends because of voice. Voice is the air that I breathe. So I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. So kind of wanted to talk about really kind of style for all. Fashion is really where I focus on um, and you know, really want to talk about universal design clothing and how voice has helped with my mission for that. So one-fifth of the world identifies as a dis have a disability, and also one-fifth of Americans. That's a huge, that's about, I would say, one billion people around the world, and they have a disposable income of $8 trillion. But here's the thing. 19% of people with disabilities are employed or make zero to less than the average income. There just isn't a lot of opportunities for us to make money. Next slide. See this. And one of the main things that no one really thinks about is clothing. 
It is illegal to walk out of your house naked. You need clothing. And to this date, there really hasn't been any brands besides brands like Tommy Hilfiger that provide stylish clothing that allow you to express yourself and to feel good. Right now, it's really just been very geriatric with different things like Velcro. And you can really tell that the clothing is not for you and that you have a disability. So what we've done here is that I was the late stage co-founder of an incubator at MIT in Parsons where we create clothing that uses technology for people with disabilities. Because of the lack of income that we see, it is so important to teach the community how to create their own adaptive clothing. Because we really believe that it's empowerment through self-dressing and style. As you can see here, I am standing on a beautiful, beautiful incline, which has, right, I'm sitting on top of the Roosevelt kind of platform, and he was disabled. And when you think about there, I could dress myself in all of those outfits that are there because of adaptive clothing. And what we try to focus on is we fabricate functional and stylish designs for and with a person with disabilities. And here's four of our clients really rocking the different looks that we were able to create for them. And we've created over 100 possible solutions over the last five years. But here's the issue we're running into. I receive about 10 Facebook messages a day from all around the world, people saying, I need your help. Can you help me create this thing? Last week, I was creating a tie for someone that is voice activated because they're losing the ability to speak with their muscles are deteriorating, and they're able to basically enhance their voice through that. So those things are just so important. We just are three girls. We can't do this for everyone. So we sat back one day, and I was working on a skill um, for a major brand at work, and I said, why don't we just teach the community how to make it themselves? But how do you get that out there? And we've done that through a skill that we're working on right now. The one other thing that we're trying to do is we're also creating these boxes. So what we'll do is we provide the video tutorials on how to hack your own clothing, and then we're creating these boxes that have tools for people with limited dexterity to create their own clothing. So this is just the prototype of the box we're hoping to launch in September. And this is a, just a slight demo of a work in progress scale that we're working on. It has sound, but I don't think it's working right now. But basically, paper it's showing. And cut out sleeve. Oh, perfect. Step two make the paper pattern to use as a stencil to trace and cut out leather or alternative fabric. Step three. Stitch the elbow part first. Step four, stitch leather to the cutout sweater. Hooray, you're finished.
So why this was really important is because someone who uses a wheelchair to get around, their elbow backs of their shirts rip all of the time. And when there isn't a lot of money when it comes to, you know, because of the jobs for people with disabilities, you want to make sure their products work. So using voice and video, we're able to teach people who are also deaf and vision impaired multiple ways on how to create these clothings. And that's why voice is so important to me. Thank you. So I really urge you, when anything that you're creating, please make sure that it's inclusive for both people that are vision impaired and deaf. It's been really amazing with the actual screen that came on on the new Alexa show because it really, really helps with that. And any skill that you create, make sure it has captions so you're not leaving somebody out. You are the difference from someone getting a job and not getting a job if you have voice capabilities with all of the skills that you're creating and different actions you're doing at work. Um, I really hope, you know, you guys, and I have my email here, but see me as a reference. If you need help testing out your skill with the community, we really want to be sure that, you know, we created, voice was created for someone with a disability, and now some of the skills are leaving people out. And we want to make sure that people with disability are always included in every skill creation. And I'm happy to help with any of that, and feel free to email me or pull me aside today at the conference. And I wanted to leave, you know, about five minutes open for any questions. Um, you know, see me as a resource, because I'm really here to help. Thank you, Christina. Thanks. Give it up. I do. If I can here. Can I get this mic? There we go. Great. Does anybody, we have a couple minutes. Does it, what questions come to mind? What, what questions would you like to ask Christina? Don't Anything? be shy. Don't be shy. Could be a comment as well. Oh, here you go. Great. Sinana. Hi, this is Sinana. Um, I just want to say super inspiring. Oh, I mean, you. way to take a setback and turn it into an amazing comeback and doing it in a way that you're actually paying it forward and, you know, benefiting um, folks in the community. So I don't have a specific question. I will connect with you offline, but I'm just very inspired by your story. Amazing. So, thank you so much. As am I. Awesome. Yes. Christina, thank you again. Thank you, guys. Let's give it up one more time for Christina Mallon. As technologists, whether we're designers, developers, product leaders, marketers, you know, one of the, one of the discussions that's one of the important discussions that's been happening over the last, the last few years, but it's increasing in importance, is the discussion around bias. And you know, as a 53-year-old white male, I haven't always recognized my own bias, and I have my own stories and anecdotes that I can share about times where my bias entered into the way that I managed myself, my company, my people, my staff, and this conversation is something that I really look forward to because it's going to improve me as a person, as a technologist, as a leader, as a father, and hopefully as a friend and ally to all of you. So let's bring up our next panel. Please make your way up and I will introduce our moderator and then we'll turn it over to her to introduce the panelists. Go ahead, panelists, please come on up. Darlene Gillard, let's give it up. She's the director of community and the founding team at Digital undivided. Darlene. Hey, 
Thank you hey, so hey, thank much. You All right, everyone. So come we're on not. Up. We're going to let them introduce themselves. So you guys just come okay. on up. Yes, we've made friends. Show business. You're number four. Darlene, go ahead and take it away. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Hey, everyone. Okay, we're How home. you doing? How you doing? Good? Okay. <laughs> it's the last day, right? This is exciting. So I'm so excited about this panel. Um, you guys may notice that one of the panelists who was supposed to be here, X. Um, I know X. <laughs> you anyway. do know X? I well, do. Well. She just left... Microsoft. She anyway. sure did just leave Microsoft right. and she's at Google, but unfortunately she was called away back to Mountain View this morning and so she won't be here. However, we are very lucky to have Miss Noelle Lachetere, <laughs> who apparently has done a keynote, is amazing, and is actually the perfect person for this panel. So thank you so much. It all works out. For, it yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the end. Yes, yes, it did work out in the end. So we actually are going to um, ask you guys, if you're interested in asking questions, you guys can download sli.do, right? And um, put in the hashtag bias panel and ask us questions. So at the end, we'll try to answer and do our best to answer as many questions as we can. But again, you do have to download sli.do um, and just put in bias panel and you can ask us some stuff, okay? Great. So, um, so I am Darlene Gillard. I'm one of the founding team members and a partner at Digital Undivided. Digital Undivided is an organization that works with black and Latinx women founders to create scalable companies. We have an incubator program and we do research. Um, our incubator just opened in Newark um, recently, so we're up the street. We have a location in Atlanta as well. And Kalechi, our program lead, our Newark representative is here as well. So um, we're most known for our research. Our um, research is proprietary, it's called Project Diane, and it was on the state of black women and tech entrepreneurship in the United States. And it was really the first time that the problem was quantified where black women were not able to raise venture funding. They were raising less than 1% of all venture funding, which is really sad. Um, we've done the report twice already. We're looking at 2020, and those numbers are changing, but there are definitely still some issues. And the other thing that we discovered in the report is biases. There are lots of biases when it comes to women, women of color in the innovation space. And so that's why I'm here to, um, to talk about all that with you guys. And so I want to jump right in and just, for the sake of this conversation, talk about and define bias. So bias is a term that we define broadly as it relates to outcomes which are systemically or systematically less favorable to individuals within a particular group and where there is no relevant difference between groups that justify such harms. And so panelists... We're not going to do one, one, one. Well, for this one, we will. We'll ask everyone <laughs> to answer. Um, how do you think we're doing in 2019 addressing bias and in artificial intelligence and voice assistance? And how do you address it in your day-to-day -day roles? So we can start with you, Jen. Absolutely. Um, so I'll introduce myself as yeah. well. I'm yeah. Jen Heap. I'm the CCO and co-founder of Vixen Labs, which is a vo voice-first consultancy and design studio in London in the UK you hadn't guessed by my accent. Um, where are we right now? Um, we are definitely still in a 
complex and problematic space, which we will be discussing in detail during this panel. Uh, but I do think that we are at a place of very heightened awareness of the problem. And that definitely gives me a lot of hope. The fact that we are here doing this panel, the fact that there are these groups and organizations really delving into this issue, yeah. I think we are definitely at a tipping point, I would hope, to go from rhetoric to action. Um, where do we um, encounter it and action it specifically at Dixon Labs is actually mainly through something that I would describe as empathic design. So actually, I, I love that. <laughs> no, I like that one. I love that. <laughs> it's actually really a very fundamental understanding of who we are talking to and why what biases um, may come into play when we are identifying those consumer and user groups, the way that we speak to them, the way that we create um, the language modeling and the use of interaction modeling to engage with those people. So I think it's, um, as a tenant of user-centric design, it's really pulling that out and keeping our understanding and our experience of voice as human as possible, yeah. which I would argue is one of the core parts of this entire discussion. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. So, uh, good afternoon. My name is Ed Doran. I'm from Microsoft Research. Uh, I, uh, my focus is really to work with the MSR organization on inventing the new science and the new engineering. Uh, previously, I was a co-founder of Cortana. So, we're very focused on how do we not only take this new science and engineering, but turn it into a product that you want to have as part of your daily life. And I, I think the point that was just made is extremely important, which is if we earn the right to be part of your day, then we're responsible for doing that in an appropriate way, in an ethical way, yes. in the best possible way. <laughs> and so AI is really built around empowering people. And that means we have to not only invent the new voice models, the new ways of interacting, but we have to invent new ways to detect and mitigate and adjust for biases. And I think we'll be talking about that in more detail today, but this is a really exciting time because we've gathered enough of the fundamentals to start a conversation. Now we need to work together with you to really have something to say. Awesome. Hi, everybody. Hi. Uh, this, I just got here, so I'm going <laughs> to try and roll with it. Um, so as some of you know, uh, I work for Microsoft. I actually was hired into MSR. Um, I was very passionate about the thought that goes into our technology and loved it, but Unfortunately, I was part of a very exciting part of MSR called Cognitive Services and was within weeks, really, maybe a month, reorganized, reorgs, anyone? Anyway, fun times, <laughs> reorged into a product team, um, which it actually taught me quite a bit. Uh, it, it taught me um, the difference, right, between being in a research team and having research projects, experiments, we called them, and then really the work did not change. But the expectation of that work changed significantly when we moved into product. And so I became a huge advocate for our enterprise customers. I speak to enterprise customers all the time, the C-level, and I try to explain to them that this is a research project. <laughs> These are experiments. And with those experiments comes our responsibility to create a what I call a governance body. A, I mean, we did this 10 years ago when service-oriented architectures came out. We created mm -hmm. processes for protecting like those who would use our technology. And we need to think in those same lines now, especially as we move things into production. Um, so, so anyway, I'm glad to be here. I hope I can contribute in a meaningful way. Of course. 
Hi everyone, I'm David Jakobovich. I work for Galvanize. I'm on the enterprise division where we do retraining and reskilling for companies all across the US at our nine campuses. I'm also involved with our workforce initiatives. We work with the Small Business Administration, um, Tech Talent Pipeline, and initiatives in New York City to train up people from making $18,000 a year to $85,000 a year. And part of those initiatives for us being in data science is how do you train people to not just solve problems, but to solve problems better. And on the heels of working and training initiatives for the last few years, uh, I've launched an AI podcast called Humane, where I interview a lot of experts, including Noel, who was featured <laughs> last month. And one of the big trends we are seeing just in the last nine months is new fields of AI, explainable AI and interpretable AI. And that's all around bias. How do we mitigate and change these results? At our classes, we start teaching this to students to think beyond one number, but what does the data really tell you? Well, you all kind of mentioned AI, obviously, this is what this is about. So just for the sake of this discussion, can we talk about like, um, how are we defining AI, artificial intelligence? Can anyone answer that? <laughs> We're gonna rock, paper, big, yeah, yeah, yeah. rock <laughs> paper, Go ahead. Uh, well, I'll tell you from my perspective, I, in all of the executive um, briefings that I do, the way that we explain AI is kind of in this three-pronged effect, and it starts with, uh, in, in any order really, but applied AI and the ability now to democratize AI and get AI into the hands of everybody, including every developer in any language. Um, but with that, right, if you think about, I used to be like, Hooray, AI, oh, I love this. Let's get AI into every developer. And then I'm like, oh wait, no, not not you or you, right? You're a troublemaker. <laughs> I'm not sure, I, right? All of a sudden I started to be concerned about this democratization concept and what what are we teaching devs about this ethic? I never took an ethics class. I wanted to, but I didn't, you know, in a computer science field. How much of this are we are we teaching? So that applied AI is one piece, and then custom AI, where you're rolling your own, right, building your own um, applications, your own uh, models from scratch, choosing your own algorithms, using your own data, cleaning your own data, um, which has its own challenges. And now Microsoft's really trying to offer the middle, which is our chance really to encourage the world to start where we left off. We've done a lot to make sure we've built some of these models as responsibly as we can. We've created boards and governance processes to control this, the quality of these models. And so we wanna hand those to you as your baseline and then you build on top of them. And that's the reason we do it, right? It's, it's a, you know, a lot of people, especially the executives even at Microsoft, often were like, okay, we're gonna give the models away, <laughs> right? Is that what we're doing? And everyone's like, yes, of course we are. <laughs> we have to make these models accessible so that at least the, the technology, the knowledge, and the processes we've created can reach more and more people. And that's the true democratization, I think, that we're looking for. Sure. I think just also to add something, well, to continue on something that you just said, Noel, I think that um, there's often this, this real abstraction of 
AI, especially from a design standpoint. I mean, I'm essentially a, a designer, the UX designer, sure, but still, um, that it's this far off thing that sort of exists in like some sort of like cyborg cloud in the sky. Um, but, it, but it's not. When we're talking about this, and this is where the bias question is so incredibly important, there is always a human behind it, something we were discussing yeah. earlier. Yeah. And having that understanding of, you know, what we are putting into machine learning comes from the data. The data comes from people. It's not being created in some other universe existence. And I think that's so important. So when you're talking about the access to that or the not access to that and the people who are involved in feeding that funnel, that's really, I think, at the core of a lot of this discussion. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, fundamentally, I think of AI as using machine learning to empower people, mm -hmm. right? So if the goal here is to help people lead better lives, be more productive, be more creative, then it's, a, it's fundamentally designed with a human in the loop. Now, when we talk about bias then, one of the things that, that, that AI can do, though, is help you identify bias that you might not be aware of. So for example, we've, we've taught systems to look over massive, massive amounts of data to look at word structure. And you can find within that word structure the three-dimensional mathematical distance between words. And you'll find that Newark and New Jersey are closely associated, that makes sense. But you'll also find that CEO and man are more closely associated than CEO and woman. That's bias, that's an error. So we've been building new tools to go through and identify where are those biases, and then how do you fix those biases mm -hmm. So that when you have humans in the loop, you're not giving them bad recommendation or biased recommendations, but you're giving them their best recommendations. Yeah, I mean, human beings are naturally um, predisposed to biases, right? And some algorithms run the risk of amplifying those biases in areas that include creditworthiness, um, employability, mm -hmm. and even sentencing, mm -hmm. right? So, so what happens when a major global industry like computer programming, I think you'll have something to say about this, is dominated <laughs> by singular cultural perspective. I, I, think, I think, well, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but mm -hmm. we're at this point where an entirely new ecosystem is gonna open up around AI, right? Remember when the web took off and all these companies started and these new experiences started? Remember when mobile took off, the same thing happened? That's going to happen with AI. And we believe that while we're really bad at predicting the future, and if you go back and read predictions of the future before, people thought you'd asphyxiate on a train because you went faster than people could run. <laughs> um, we're good at building the future we want to go have. And so at Microsoft Research, we literally have thousands of people distributed around the world in the US, China, India, Europe, Africa, the Middle East. And we're trying to bring together all those diverse perspectives to build the next world. But I think it's going to take all of us. It can't just be one group. Right. And it's going to be both humans and machines. So with two use cases from Berkeley to New York, we're seeing how humans are changing the narrative. In Berkeley just last week, all uh, gender-based uh, pronouns were changed to neutral pronouns. So no mm. longer is it firefighter, it's fireperson. Policeman is now police officer. 
But similarly in New York City, where over 800 languages are spoken, uh, where over 25% of people do not speak English or Spanish as their first language, this is where the machines, this is where AI with products that we know from Microsoft and Google and other companies are going to help bridge the gap. And uh, talking with some tech advisory boards uh, about the mayor of New York just this week, we're starting to see how that's going to evolve in politics and other use cases, both enterprise and consumer. And just to, uh, to hit the maybe elephant in the room, uh, I would be the voice at the table that doesn't look like anyone else. Um, and in conversations, specifically those that involve models and deployment, um, I think it's very important we understand that we are nowhere near where we need to be when it comes to acknowledging the differences in the room uh, and making not just like we have all of these trainings and process, it's great, I mean, good, yay. I've been in this industry for 25 <laughs> years and the numbers are worse now. We should figure out why, I mean, I can tell you why, but we should figure out why that is, but more importantly, we need to take extra effort to make sure specifically around AI that that table is extremely diverse, overly diverse. Um, because I do feel right now there are people talking, talking loudly, yelling <laughs> and screaming and then quitting. And I think that that is a dynamic that I would love to see change. It's the reason I don't quit today, <laughs> yeah. right? Cause I'm like, I'm gonna keep a smile on my face and I'm just gonna keep talking as much as I can. Uh, but all of us have a role to play at that table. And if you look around and see people that are you or everyone saying yes, we have to find a different perspective. Yeah. And mm. I think <laughs> that analogy, uh, well, that comment of people saying, you know, talking, talking, louding, screaming, like leaving, yeah. I think to, just to bring it very, very specifically to voice, also applies to people with their smart speakers at home. Because if we do not have the diversity from an engineering standpoint of the people who are at that table in that closed room in Silicon Valley, then we are having this huge issues with NLU and LLP and the parity levels. Mm -hmm. So that, and then we are getting into this hugely concerning negative feedback loop. Because as mm -hmm. we said before, Machine learning learns from the data, the data that goes in, it gets more intelligent. So in using your devices, that is how it's learning. If through a lack of the understanding of different accents, we know that we go from sort of like 95% parity for you know white men, then you've got like a 10% drop for women. And then for example, if you have a Scottish accent in the UK, it drops to about 55%. Right. So, um, and I know there's a lot of other deeply concerning statistics there. So if we are fundamentally excluding people from using voice assistance, then we are continuing to entrench the biases around language, let alone any other issues. Mm -hmm. So we are continuing a feedback where it is never learning. It's never having that interjection with a difference from a language standpoint. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit because one of the biggest problems with voice technology is the lack of inclusive inclusivity with the, for the hearing impaired, for people mm -hmm. with accents and certain accents and dialects. So each of you or some of you, can, can you describe and articulate the problem of the lack of diversity in voice technology? 
I think one use case that um, has been called a state of emergency for the country of Iceland that was in the news just in the last few months is that the language of Icelandic is almost going extinct. And this is such an interesting question if you're in human-centered design because you say, why not? Wouldn't you pick up the language of your parents and, and, and your family? But the challenge that was uncovered is that all the voice assistants were programmed in English so that all the new Generation A and Generation Z were learning English and no longer the language of their heritage. So it is also thinking about those systems. I think that's one use case. Yeah. Well, I think, I think at its root, because we have enough fundamental building blocks in place, it's our job to provide value. When value is provided, then you drive engagement. I mean, think about like the Xiao Ice platform. This is a speech platform we use in China that has billions of conversations and is averaging 23 turns per conversation. It means you're talking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. That means we've brought enough value to the table that we can engage with the customer and we can learn from them. So I think part of the challenge, and I think this goes back to the human-centered design question is, are we getting enough diverse people at the table to help us understand the nuance and where we can really add value? Yeah. Mm. And then we can start to bring to bear these fundamental building blocks that we've been putting together. I think that it's also a, a two-tier problem. Oh, two-tier challenge, actually. Um, where you have the higher level, kind of at the platform level, to mm. actually put the the infrastructure, the AI infrastructure in place to be able to handle the diversity question um, at all levels. But then also you have a design paradigm as well. Mm. Um, because I think there are, there are two lanes of travel here. There is what we can do right now and that responsibility that we have and what is the ongoing piece of work. We can't change ML in 24 hours. That is an ongoing piece of work. And also, it is not something that's static. We won't complete the level of machine learning and be like, cool, peace out, we can all go home. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it's, you know. Um, but what we can do right now, and I, and I definitely see this as a responsibility of designers, is you can look at what are the biases that you are bringing to the design of your third party applications and first party, mm. but I'm just speaking as a third party. <laughs> um, and, you know, what is the synonym work that you are doing? How are you considering your utterances? How are you looking at the structures and the dialogue interactions that consumers are going to be having and why? What are the cultural, um, culturally specific issues that may come into that design? Yeah. And also, what... Um, what negative biases might you be purporting through the targeting of your product to a certain group? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're creating a, um, a, a third-party app for young parents, why would it be the woman? I mean, that's a, that's a very, you know, obvious example, but these are the tenets that we've learned from the past 15, 20 years in advertising. Mm. Um, this is not a new subject, and we must take that learning and go forward into this and not repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that I've experienced in speaking to a lot of companies is there's a bit of surprise when they come and they're like, don't you have a data set for this industry? Don't you have a data set for this niche or this market? <laughs> and the reality is, is we have probably hundreds of data sets, but every, we are at a space in our evolution in AI where we are holding those data sets very, very close. And they are our value to yeah. kind of piggyback on what you were saying. And that those data sets represent like they are our company. And, and it's interesting to me because I talked to all these companies and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. How much time are you spending on that data set? Because there's four other companies 
all very large organizations. And if you would come together, if you would collaborate, if you would create this kind of consortium where everybody wins, what would happen, right? We would start to see this diverse, we would see more diversity certainly in the data because their customer sets are diverse that are generating that data. There's lots of complexities as to why that doesn't happen, but I do see companies like Microsoft trying to forge these relationships, right? Because that's the nice thing about having a big company is that you can create what people are concerned about, business relationships. You can start creating legal, uh, you know, compliance regulations, things that will help people feel more comfortable in doing this sharing. But it's just like anything else. In 20 years, people are like, oh wait, it's not actually the data. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not mm-hmm. the, it's not the data set that brings value to my customers and they will share openly. Um, GitHub was not originally extremely successful as it is today. A lot of devs were like, what? Open source my code? And there are still devs <laughs> that feel this today. But it is now massively successful because we realize actually my individual code is not my value, right? Mm-hmm. Actually in giving it and helping people evolve where they're at, I get more value from that. So I think it is just a state of evolution, but it is a problem, which is kind of what we need that clarity of voices. Uh, yes. And I'll echo what Noelle's saying is to move the needle into this direction is we can look at other places where this has seen success. We look mm-hmm. at China, we see Alibaba and Tencent. Mm-hmm. They've built a universal system and because they're building all this data and it's shared, they're seeing a lot of success. So um, Noelle and I talked about this on Humane. We're starting to see that success here in the US and looking forward to that collaboration. Yes. So, so why is this conversation important, right? Mm-hmm. What are the opportunities? What are the missed opportunities? What are the gains? What's the impact of um, being inclusive and diverse in voice and AI, voice technology and AI? Well, I think I mean, I'm going to harken back to what Jen mentioned earlier is I think there's a lesson from the humanities. Yeah. So if you think, pick your favorite humanity, uh, music, literature, artwork, whatever, and say, I'm going to cast a vector through that and I'll only look at work created by one group of person. Hmm. It doesn't matter what vector you take, you've lost out on this massive amount of richness. You've lost these voices, you've lost these stories, you've lost a compelling piece of human life. We know this in humanities and it applies to the science and engineering just the same. So what we'd like to do is turn it around and say, we've forged an initial path But now it's about opening the door and trying to get as many people into it as possible so that we can have that richer future, so we can have more diversity, we can have more experiences. And I guarantee you when that happens, we'll have to invent new tools when we do it. So for example, we have a number of speech systems, but they don't work really well if we don't have the words in the dictionary. So we just invented something new that works on the phonic structure of sound. It's out on GitHub if you're a developer and want to play with it, but it's much more flexible towards words it's never heard or names it's never heard. So if you use the old system and you hear my name, Ed Doran, I've heard it translated into dad is boring. <laughs> and I guarantee you when your kids hear that, they're gonna be like, it's a See? billion dollar AI system, you can't argue with it, <laughs> right? But if you look at the phonic structure, it'll actually capture my name correctly. That's yeah. exciting for a scientist or an engineer. We can invent new things, but we need to invent them in that richer, broader field where everyone's at the table. No one else? No one else wants to answer that I question? Think, I, th- I think you it, think you did. Well, Maybe I think I did. I think yeah. it was like yeah. the the opportunity is to stop the path of the negative feedback loop that I was yeah. talking about. Yeah. I think we are going into what is still a 
fledgling technology, mm. especially when we consider AI within the lens of voice as yeah. well. Um, and we, we have a huge opportunity to actually get off on the right foot. Well, I mean, we're already at a slightly janky beginning, but you know, we can really, you know. <laughs> as all things start. <laughs> well, you know, exactly. Right. And you know, the fact that we are having these conversations and these discussions now about diversity, about accessibility, about, you know, openness and transparency. Um, and I think that we can really put um, the human at the center of a technology for the first time like never before. We describe that voice is like, you know, inviting another person to come and sit on the sofa with you at home. And with that, to your point earlier, and with that comes a real responsibility. It also comes a huge opportunity for a true level of empathy. Mm -hmm. If only that we are aware and we understand that each of our individual responsibilities, that is at a person level, that is at a team level, that is at a company level, and that is at an industry level. That's right. And the responsibility is more than just having the conversation, but it's taking action. And so to this date, when you have ML researchers and data scientists, um, they've been so overworked to solve a problem, move on, solve a problem, move on. But often you don't step back and look at the 50,000 level view and keep reassessing the data. I think data science processes are starting to change, whether you build an algorithm from scratch or you use pre-built, pre-trained models at a company like Microsoft. I think now at the end loop, researchers are thinking, how do I put in ethics? Or, is this data right? Let me grab different segments of the data and see, does this make sense? Am I being accessible for all audiences? Yeah. And I would just like to share a couple of experiences I've had that have been very unique, but I think present opportunity for all of us. One of them, I was, um, I led the hackathon at Abbey Road. Do you know what Abbey Road is, anyone? Yes. Anyway, there's like, she would, yes, no. <laughs> I didn't know because I failed music. Um, but I am now a very huge fan. But Abbey Road said we want to, in Studio One, like the mecca of music, um, we want to have a hackathon, a specifically an AI hackathon. And they brought together not a bunch of machine learning data scientists or engineers. They were there, but it was more important to bring the domain experts, the people that had a passion and love for music, but also felt the pain of it not being available to the right people or in the right environment. How do we make it more accessible, more available? I then went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, very, very similarly, um, led a hackathon there. Now this was a little different because we created a collaboration with MIT. MIT provided the data scientists the Met provided the curators. It was like a high school dance where like the curators were on one side, the scientists were on the other and they're like, <laughs> right? Like, do we talk to each other? And, but I will tell you, we built seven projects and every single one of them had a future. And I think it was only that way because there wasn't just a group of machine learning people looking at a problem and going, here's how I'll fix it. It was investing in that domain expertise and letting that drive the development of those models. And I think that's really where a lot of diversity can come. Yes. Um, I think like a lot of times at these hackathons, people are like, I'm not tech, what, what am I gonna do there? And I'm like, you're the expert. You are actually the expertise. We need more than the technical expertise. It is that value. So if you are in this space or know people, um, I think the future of machine learning heavily depends 
on us really accentuating the value of these domain experts and building valuable models. It, it's not just a JIRA ticket, you know? Right. It's something <laughs> that has to become a continual part of our work every single day. It doesn't matter whether or not it's, it's you know, on your job title. I mean, that it's... As industry leaders, we need to have that as a constant in the back of our mind and preferably sometimes at the forefront of our mind as well. Um, and this needs to be highly collaborative, uh, multi-geographical, blended teams yes. across all types of disciplines. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that's why coming together at something like this conference, okay, it's all within the same industry, but still we are all from so many different backgrounds and we can come together and have this discussion. And that I think is really exciting and really positive for the future. So that's great. And thank you. I see people are sending questions, so appreciate that. But want to say again, if you have a question, download sli.do and it's bias panel. Um, one more question, then I'll get to some of these questions. So what's working? Like, what is working right now? Um, where are we headed? Well, there's tons of cool stuff working. And this, is, <laughs> this is where I geek out a little bit. But, but I, I want to build on the comments that were just made. Um, we've built, for example, a really amazing bit of visualization. So if you're trying to do surgery on someone who has a brain tumor, you have to take all of these tiny little segments of their brain to try to find the tumor. And then the radiologist goes through and hand annotates where it is. It's incredibly difficult work. So we built a 3D visualization model that does an amazing job of identifying the tumor in people's heads. Now, what we find is it makes the doctor even better. So it's a perfect case of what's working where it's not just that the technology is cool, but it's the technology enables the person who has the passion, the domain expertise, the dedication to do an even better job than they could without it. Um, that's what's working. It's when an AI does its job and enables people to do what they're really great at. Mm -hmm. I think what else that's working is we're moving to an industry of experiments where we know that we need to constantly iterate. And we've seen a whole plethora of startups just appear in the last year. In New York, we have Comet.ml and Spell.run that lets you run experiments, see the bias at the end. In Silicon Valley, we have Weights and Bias, another startup that when you run the experiments, they help you interpret what's going on in machine learning. Um, even with Google's flagship product, TensorFlow, now they have their whole TensorBoard where you get to interpret your results. Mm -hmm. I think we're very much moving towards that space of thinking of interpretation in each point of the cycle. And as a, a developer, we, I love the idea of building responsible AI practices you know, into the actual framework for developers. So I've mm. heard it, my entire career, I've heard very high level people say, this is what we need to do and this is what we have to do. But at the, in the bowels, which is where I, I live, um, doing the work, like we're not so educated on the very specific things we need to do to make the right choices. And so mm. at Microsoft recently, we all got, it was a, a pun, mind you, but very useful, a golden rule, which literally was a ruler. <laughs> and on the back of it, it had this reminder of these five principles. Um, and I, we don't have time to go through them all right now, but I, this is all I do on LinkedIn, so hit me up. Um, but it's extremely important where it becomes, like you said, top of mind. Like I'm looking at that ruler every day and I'm just constantly being 
asked, like when I go to deploy something, we now have questions mm -hmm. that I become liable for. As a dev, yeah. I never thought I would see that and I've never been liable before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it makes yeah, us think awesome. twice about what we're doing and how we're doing it. So I really feel like we are moving in the right direction. And I'll tell you, Panels like this did not happen even a year ago. People were scared to get up on stage. They were scared of the backlash, scared of having the conversation, even in a hallway. And how unfortunate that is, right? Because in fear, right, is ignorance. Uh, and now we have a chance to be open and have the freedom to really just talk about it, talk about our challenges. Fail fast is a thing. Like, let's fail fast together. Um, and I really feel like it's a good thing that these kind of panels, and I'm honored to have been asked at the last minute to join it. <laughs> so How thanks. many developers in the room? Any developers? Any friends in the house? All right. Hey. <laughs> How many designers? Any designers in the room? Okay. okay. Out at the back. All Hi. over there. Any students? <laughs> students? No? All right. Raise All right, them high. So students don't raise their hands. They're <laughs> like, business yeah. people? Yeah, yeah. Business you got to be a good business owner. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. domain experts. All right, great. <laughs> so we're going to try to give you some takeaways when we're done here, but I will get into one of the questions that was asked about um, what are some approaches you've used in your companies to ensure that culturally appropriate voices, responses, and thinking are built in all your AI voice apps? Um... I would say one of the greatest points would be sort of at the beginning and at the end, which sounds like a strange thing to say. So at the beginning is actually like really know who it is that you're talking to mm -hmm. and also be humble enough to realize that you might not know how they want to be spoken to and you had to get mm -hmm. up and go outside and ask, <laughs> whether that be focus groups or research papers or anything, or probably a plurality of things that you need to do. And then as part of every single bit of your design process is user testing. Mm, because yeah. again, you have to see if it's working, you have to see if you're asking the right things. Mm -hmm. And there are moments when there can be diff, um, deeper um, levels that you need to go into. Yeah. So for example, um, we work um, quite a bit with music, so for example, and like with some of the large music labels. Um, and that is obviously something that is incredibly culturally relevant. The way, if you have a specific type of music and a specific user group within that area, the way in which they are gonna request and talk about that music, yeah. I, I'm not gonna know. <laughs> so it's actually, yeah. I think it's yeah. having that about, about being, I'm gonna say it again, being um, and like empathy yeah. yep. and yeah. sort of like really, really putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's everything from persona work, user journeys, really understanding the use cases, work, working up those stories and then testing the hell out of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think I think that's an outstanding point. I mean, we're a platform company. So what we're trying to do is apply the same rigor that we do to DevOps to thinking about AI. So. At an individual level, we have quite a bit of guidance. The rulers aren't actually gold, they're golden colored. Don't yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you find one on eBay. Oh, they're that's not right. Hang yeah. on. They're money, but Don't they're overpay not for it on eBay. <laughs> no more than 97 cents. Uh, um, so we have a, a fair amount of guidance around uh, you know, fat AI, 
fair, accountable, transparent AI. By the way, if I ever have, if I ever become a DJ, dibs on the name Fat AI for me. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, we have an Ether Committee, which is AI and ethics uh, that we use to guard, guide the company. And we're actually we're a founding member of what's called the Partnership for AI, where we brought together Microsoft, Google, Apple, and the others who are trying to hammer out these policies and make them real so we can share things, we can share best practices. So we're trying to go after it at the individual level, at the company level, and even at the ecosystem level. I think bringing students into learning data science and software engineering means having projects that are inclusive from the start. So at Galvanize, um, I identify as queer and I'm on our diversity and inclusion committee where every project that we come out with, we're making sure we're being inclusive. We're thinking of data sets that are inclusive. We're thinking mm -hmm. of project ideas that we talk back with each student to say, is this something you want to showcase to your portfolio? Is this something that reflects who you are. So I think it's important to be having that conversation and then take those actionable steps. And I'm the voice of um, a person who's very passionate about this technology but did not come to it traditionally. I do not have nor want a PhD unless it's honorary and then I'm all for that. <laughs> just um, pop that on the show. Yeah, just totally. You know, just a little shout but out. But I'm not that person. I taught myself to code after a very rough start to my life. and grew up in technology, right? Worked for all the big ones, IBM and then Red Hat and VMware, like, but I taught myself. Um, but today I watch people who are boot camp trained, galvanized trained, extremely, um, and I've actually done experiments in building models. And those that are not traditionally trained, not only do they work more collaboratively than those that might be traditionally trained, but in actual study, their models were even more accurate because they called for diversity, all those things you just mentioned. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. It's very interesting, it's a, it's a much deeper study, you should look into it. But right now, there is a very interesting gap in who we are hiring into our companies to do this work and how we maybe subconsciously, unconscious bias potentially, do not value those who did not come from a traditional educational background. And the reality is, they actually can help you build even more accurate, more diverse, more inclusive, models for your company. So I feel like that's a conversation that's worth having, you know, obviously not right now, but something, if I can do nothing, like let's just plant some seeds for conversa conversation later. That's actually, you know, just a sidebar, you know, our organization, Digital Undivided, we have an incubator program. We invite women to be part of the program who have ideas. They're very early in their, in their um, journey to becoming entrepreneurs, but we don't look at where they went to school. We look at whether or not they have hustle, whether or not they're coachable, all these things that traditionally accelerator programs or incubators won't look at, right? And so we've been able to bring in a more diverse group of women, just not just because they're of color, but just in their thinking and things like that, because it's a different, you know, a different thing that we're looking for. And so, mm -hmm. so to that point, you're great. Um, so, so let's give a, like a call to action. Like what can we tell the developers? What can we tell the designers? Someone had a question, you sort of touched on it about hiring, like how do you find the talent, oh. the right talent to mm -hmm. that, that where biases aren't yeah. you know, an issue. So anything that you, you guys can offer out, I would appreciate if you did that. So let's start with, with you, David. My number one call to action, if you're looking to address bias in AI, is to talk to those who are working on products at your company. So if that's you today, it's starting to actually put a sticky note up on your computer that's reminding you, am I building a fair system? Am I thinking responsibly about AI? Is this putting the human first? 
asking those questions is gonna help you create more fair and balanced systems. And if you're not the product owner, start having conversations with those individuals because they're willing to listen. It's just often we have blinders on. We're not aware of the biases that we have. I, if I have a call to action, it would definitely be um, you know learn and be curious. There's a couple sites that I encourage you to take a look at. If you're a dev, all four of you, <laughs> um, take a look at AI School. We spend a lot of time building up pretty deep content there. I recently helped launch um, the AI Business School, which really helps focus on a lot of the content that we've talked about here, right? What are the conversations you have at the executive level? How do you create a manifesto for AI in your company? How do you define these responsible AI practices? So we, we spend a lot of time in that AI Business School um, talking about that. It's all online. You can get a nice certificate. There is a practicum at the end, which is very fun. Um, and so hopefully I'll see you guys there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the next generation of AI is going to need your talent. And talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So let us offer you the opportunity. Uh, if you're a dev, there's great tools on GitHub. Pick them up and play with them and use them. If you're a designer, we've published design guidelines with, for ethical, fair, transparent AI. Um, if you're a student, I saw a couple hands in the back. We literally hire thousands of interns and fellows, and we just announced the Ada Lovelace Fellowship where we will fund you to go do advanced work in graduate school, um, come to the table. We'd love to have you there. Uh, I'd like to answer that very much from a design standpoint because I think that sometimes um, as uh, designers, we can take a, uh, or UXs, we can take a step back and sort of go, oh, well, you know, we don't, we don't make the systems, you know, we just play on them. Um, nope. You are still totally responsible, um, and I think owning that responsibility, having that that golden ruler of before you hit, you know, push the certification. Actually, what is it that you are putting out into the ecosystem? We are all responsible for that, um, and we need to, like I said before, individual team, organizational, industry level, we need to be really aware of what it is that we're doing, how that is um, being perceived in the mind of consumers as well, and how we are perpetuating things going forward. So I think there are certain, again, I don't have time to go into them now, but uh, find me and ask me, um, a very, very specific design principles that you can employ to make sure that you are doing that correctly and make sure that the people who are on your design team are have that empathic understanding and are diverse. I love that empathic design. Um, so that's it. My call to action is follow us at digitalundivided.com. <laughs> yes. Donate because we're a nonprofit. Um, and also, I think what we decided, there's just so much that we wanted to discuss and we have limited amount of time. I think we're going to look at doing an after the panel podcast. Not today, but tune in cool. to David's um, podcast You yeah. know, to have more. Um, to hear more about this, this we could have gone for hours. Really yeah. an important <laughs> topic. So thank you all so much. Pete, thank you so much. Let's and, give uh, it up for this yeah. amazing panel and this discussion. Thank you all so much for being leaders, for being allies for all of us and for this industry. Thank you so much. Let's give it up. Noel, thanks for coming in late. Amazing, amazing. As always, 
Thank you so much for listening to the Inside Voice podcast. If you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the show and leave a review. And if you have any questions or comments or guests you'd like to see on the show, please feel free to reach out to me at kerry at motive.com. That's K-E-R-I at M-O-D-E-V.com, carry at motive.com. Don't forget to visit voicesummit.ai slash gallery to see all of the photos and videos from Voice Summit 19. And we look forward to bringing you more great conversations in the voice tech world on this show and at our future events. Mm-hmm.